Chapter Eleven of the Ghost Ship. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nigel Boydell. The Ghost Ship by John C. Hutchison. Chapter Eleven In the Gulf Stream. It's a dead calm, sir, I heard Mr. Fawcett sing out next morning outside the door of the skipper's stateroom, which opened out of the saloon, close to my berth, when he went to call him at four bells, in obedience to the orders given overnight. The gale has completely blown itself out, and there's only a little cat's paw of a breeze from the southers. Ugh, yawned the skipper from within. That's a good job, Fawcett. I think we've had enough wind to last us for a blue moon. So shall I, sir, agreed the other with much heartiness. I wouldn't like to go through the same experience again, by jingo. Nor I, came from the other, evidently about to turn out from his bunk. I'll be on deck in five minutes or so, Fawcett. The first mate, however, would not take this for a dismissal having apparently further important information to give, and which he at once proceeded to disclose. "'Do you know, sir? I think we're in the Gulf Stream,' he said in an impressive tone. "'There's a lot of weed knocking about round the ship.' "'Gulf weed!' exclaimed the skipper's voice again from the cabin, sounding a bit muffled, as if he were in the act of pulling his shirt over his head. "'Are you certain?' Aye, affirmed the other. There's not the slightest doubt about it. It's as plain as a pike staff, sir. The deuce it is, said the skipper in a louder key, showing that my surprise had been correct as to the progress of his toilet, and that his head was now unloosed from its bag-like envelope. By George, I can't make it out at all. There's no getting over the fact, sir, persisted the first mate. We're quite surrounded by the weed. I saw it well the first streak of light at two bells, on suddenly looking over the side, sir. There's Mr. O'Neill upon the bridge now, and he's noticed it too. The skipper, to judge from the voice that came from his cabin, and the way he was banging his boots and other things about, was as much mystified by Mr. Fawcett's unexpected announcement as he had been the previous evening by the sight he and I and the boatswain had seen. He was also angry, I know, so I thought it good for me to turn out likewise from my bunk as speedily as possible, it not being advisable under the circumstances to be caught napping. "'By George, I can't understand it,' repeated Captain Applegarth crossly. "'If we're in the Gulf Stream, all I can say is we must have drifted a wonderful distance in the last two or three days. Why, man, the current is seldom perceptible above the fortieth parallel. I know that, sir, replied the first mate. But if you recollect, sir, from the lunar observation Mr. O'Neill took on the night of the breakdown, we were then as far south as forty-one degrees thirty minutes, and we've been drifting southeast by east ever since. Well, Fawcett, I'm hanged if I know where we are, 
after the bucketing about we've had since last Friday, said the skipper, who now came into the saloon, where I, already dressed, was hurriedly having a cup of cocoa and a bite of biscuit Weston had just brought me in from the pantry. I feel half inclined now to believe in that old superstition about it being an unlucky day, though I always used to laugh at the notion. There are plenty aboard who believe queerer than that, said Mr. Fawcett dryly, with a meaning glance in my direction, eyeing my cocoa as if he rather fancied a cup himself. I say, Haldane, that cocoa smells good. It's not half bad, sir, I replied, grinning. Perhaps you would like some too, sir. Weston's got a lot more inside here. Hot, just fetch from the galley. I don't mind if I do have a cup, said he. Will you join me, Captain? No, thanks. I'm too worried. I'll wait till breakfast, said the skipper, turning to go upon deck by the companionway, and hitching his cap off the hook by his cabin door. You won't be long, I hope, eh? I'll follow you up in a jiffy, sir, as soon as I have swallowed a toothful of this warm stuff to keep out the cold, eh, steward? Aye, aye, sir, answered Weston, promptly putting his head out of the pantry where he had been listening. Cup of cocoa, sir? Yes, sir. I say, Fawcett, said the captain, who had lingered near a while, as if in deep thought, as he stood with one foot on the lower step of the companion, as if he were trying to recollect something. I say, we must make some points today on the chart, you know. Yes, sir. I don't think there will be any difficulty about that, do you? No, the sun ought to be pretty clear at noon with a morning like this clear enough at all events for us to find out the latitude and longitude. Just what I said to Spokeshave, sir, before I came down to call you a while ago. Quite so. Aye, quite so, sir. Whereupon both sniggered at the captain's apt mimicry of Master Conkey's pet phrase, which Captain Applegarth pronounced in the little beggar's exact tone of voice, so like indeed being the imitation that I nearly choked myself while swallowing the balance of my cocoa, as I hastily drained my cup and rose to follow the skipper up the companion ladder to the deck. As Mr. Fawcett has said, there was a dead calm on the bosom of the deep, for the slight swell that remained after the gale on the previous evening, even up to the time of my going down below, had quite disappeared the surface of the water being as smooth as glass as far as the horizon line, and all aflash now with the rosy hue of sunrise to the eastward. The sky still preserved, however, the pale, neutral tints of night in the west, and up to the zenith, where it merged into a faint and beautiful sea-green that lost itself imperceptibly in the warm colouring of the Orient, which each moment became more and more intense in hue, heralding the approaching morn. At last, up jumped the glorious orb of day, proudly from his ocean bed, came with one bound, as it were, a veritable globe of liquid fire, flooding the vast distant heaven and sea with a wealth of light and radiance that seemed to give life to everything around. "'There, Aldane,' said Captain Applegarth, pointing over the traffail at a lot of straggling masses of quasi-looking, stringy stuff that came floating on top of the water close by the ship, resembling a vegetable refuse discarded from Neptune's kitchen garden. "'That's the gulf weed Mr. Fawcett was just speaking about to me.' 
Indeed, sir, I can't say much for its appearance. It looks more like a parcel of cauliflowers run to seed than anything else, sir. Yes, that's not a bad simile of yours, my lad, he replied, moving nearer to the side and sending his keen, sailorly glance alow and aloft, examining her old barker to see how she fared after the storm. If I can remember rightly, I think one of our best naturalists has given a similar description of it. Yes, that's the gulfweed, or sargassum, or fucos natans, as the big guns variously call it in their Latin lingo. A rum sort of tackle, isn't it? Yes, it does look funny, queer stuff, sir, said I, for I had never had the opportunity of noticing it before. All my voyages hitherto, backwards and forwards, across the Atlantic, having been outside the limits of the uncanny-looking gulfweed. Does it grow in the sea, sir? It looks so fresh and green. Well, that depends how you take it, my lad, returned the skipper rather absently, his attention being fixed on something forward, about which he evidently could not quite make up his mind, as there was a slight puzzled expression on his face. You see, it is all through those long-winded chaps who won't be content with what the Creator gave them, but must put a cause and reason for everything beyond God's own will and pleasure, and who lay down arbitrary rules of their own for the guidance of Dame Nature, though between you and I and the binnacle, Haldane, the old lady got on well enough for a good many scores of years, I'd be sorry to say how many, without their precious help. Now these gentlemen, who know everything, will have it that the gulfweed grows deep down at the bottom of the sea, and that only the branches and tendrils, or leaves, so to speak, float on the top and are visible to us. "'How strange, sir,' said I, "'just like an aquarium plant. It is strange.' "'It would be, if true, for they would have to possess uncommonly long stems, as, in the Sagasso Sea, in the centre of the Gulf Stream, where the weed is most plentiful and to be seen at its freshest and most luxuriant growth, the recorded depth of the water is over four miles. That is not likely, then, I observed in reply to this. I mean, sir, the fact of its growing up from the bottom of the sea. Certainly not, my boy. Another wise man, of the same kidney as the long-winded chap of the theory I've just explained, says that the gulfweed, in its natural and original state, grows on the rocky islets and promontories of the Florida coast, and that it is torn thence by the action of the great Atlantic current that bears it many miles from its home. Though, strangely enough, I have never seen any gulfweed growing on rocks in the Gulf of Florida, or in any of the adjacent seas, nor has anyone else, to my knowledge. Then you do not believe it grows to anything at all, do you, sir? No, I don't. My opinion is that it is a surface plant of old Neptune's rearing, and that the warm waters of the Gulf Stream breeds it and nourishes it, for at certain times it seems partly withered, and this could not be due to accident. The weed, I believe, is a sailor like you and I, my lad, and lives and has its being on the sea. No matter what your longshore naturalists who don't know much about it from personal observation may say to the contrary. Hello there, my boy. Look forward there. Where has our spire anchor gone? I thought I noticed something. I could not make it out at first what it was. Look, youngster, and see whether you can see it. 
I was equally puzzled for the moment, for although our good ship rested as peacefully on the bosom of the deep as if she were moored, the raft-like bundles of spars to which she had been made fast the night before was now no longer to be seen bobbing up ahead athwart our oars as then. Where could our wonderful floating anchor have gone? The next moment, however, I saw what had happened, the mystery being easily explained by the calm. They've floated alongside, sir, I said. I can see them under the counter on the port side, sir. Yes, of course, there they are, exemplifying the attraction of gravitation, or some other long-winded theory of your scientific gentleman, replied the skipper, who seemed to have got science on the brain this morning, being violently antagonistic to it, somehow or other. Ah, Fawcett, see our anchors come home without weighing. I think you'd better have the spars hauled on board and rig up the sticks again, now that they've served our time in another way. Aye, and served it well, too. Aye, aye, sir, said the first mate, who had come up after us on the poop, looking, I couldn't help noticing, all the better for the good and early breakfast he had just finished. I thought of getting them in just now, but waited to call you first. Well, you needn't wait any longer, Fawcett, rejoined the skipper. Pass the word for the boatswain forward. Yes, yes, sir. Quartermaster callmasters, boatswain, pipe all hands to hoist spars aboard. These orders were roared out by Fawcett in rapid succession, and then in equally rapid sequences came the boatswain's whistle and the hail to the men down the hatchway just along the deck. All had a rare time of it. An amount of yo-ho-hoing went around that it would have done anybody's heart good to hear. The first mate was bellowing out his orders, and all masters seen to their proper execution by the busy hands and active feet. The skipper, meanwhile, standing on the poop, superintending matters with his keen eye. And woe to the lubber who bungled at a hitch, or left a rope's end loose, or braced slack. End of chapter 11